This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set up the news stories of the next seven days. I'm Justin Quirk. Joining me this morning to work out the week ahead is political commentator, bunker regular, and the perceptive Jeeves to my bemused Bert from Worcester, Alex Andreu. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Justin. Thank you for that introduction. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got to start with what's still a developing story in the aftermath of the appalling attack on novelist Salman Rushdie while he was on stage on Friday at an event in New York State. What's the latest on his condition and the police investigation? Tough one. The injuries have been described as life-changing, which usually means residual damage that results in significant impairment. From sources close to Rushdie, I think he's lost an eye, and the tendons in his left arm are severed, but he's expected to recover some of the mobility in his left arm. But he's stable, he's off the ventilator, and he's sort of whispering softly, Um, He's aware of people around him and he's saying stuff. So I think the news are on the whole encouraging. There is footage of the attack. I haven't been able to bring myself to watch it. I met Salman about 13 years ago. I was doing a a play at the National Black Album, Hanif Qureshi's Black Album. And on a nightly basis for about a year, first for six months at the National and then on tour, I would burn his book on stage, or rather I burned a facsimile of Salman's book on stage. And we had a a very interesting chat uh, after the premiere. And I think the significant thing is that, you know, the play was a black comedy. So 12 years ago, this was something that was okay to joke about. And we've gone really back in time with that. Taking a look at the the bigger picture here in the context, um, the fatwa on Rushdie was obviously originally issued by the Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran in 1989. And while it was walked back to some degree by the Qatami government in the early noughties, it hadn't actually been lifted. What are the likely diplomatic repercussions going to be from this, do you think? I mean, Iran is already under quite severe sanctions. And the West, on the whole, is trying to get them to rejoin the agreement to not advance their nuclear research. So, I mean, relations are at a low. I'm not sure what sort of repercussions directly diplomatically this will have. I suspect it will be more more that pressure is put on 
allies of Iran to condemn the attack. Maybe it might refresh pressure to rescind the fatwa. There were some attempts, first of all, in in the early 2000s, then in 2006. But by February 2006, the Iranian state reported that the fatwa will remain in place permanently. Salman used to joke that because this happened on the 14th of February, he would receive a, a, an annual letter from um, the Iranian state that sort of said the fatwa is still in place, and he considered it a, a, a Valentine's card. So it's also worth remembering that there's a fin- there is a financial incentive out there to attack Rushdie. There's a bounty, a $3 million bounty, by decree issued by an Islamic religious leader in Iran, and this was raised a further half a million dollars by a sort of quasi-official Iranian religious foundation as recently as 2012. So the bounty is now $3.5 million, and it does come from semi-official Iranian organizations. So that might be something that the West targets. I mean, I know that money is not necessarily what motivates these fanatics, but it is significant that there is still a financial reward out there from quasi-official Iranian sources. Yeah, the payment certainly hasn't put anyone off, I wouldn't imagine. Um, Moving on um, to domestic matters, um, Labour leader Keir Starmer was interviewed Friday where he was defending Labour's response to the cost of living crisis. Labour are announcing new proposals to combat this today. Um, What should we expect from them? I mean, it's been widely trailed, so I I think I can tell you exactly what's going to be in the speech. Labour are proposing freezing the price cap on energy bills where it currently stands which is 1,971, if I remember correctly, and doing that until at least the end of the March next year. So to encompass the next two reviews, as it were, because there's one coming now, there's another in January, and then the next one is in April. So what they're saying is freeze it for these two coming reviews. I mean, it is expected to be up to 4,200 by the January review. So this is a significant intervention. You know, it's a halving of the average cap, more than that, actually, 4,200 to 1,971. So it's a big, bold move by Labour. This feels like an issue on which the Tories are extremely vulnerable. I thought Truss's comment last week about saying profit not being a dirty word felt like a major misstep from her. Seemed particularly tin-eared about public mood while energy prices are on every front page this morning. Do we have any idea where Tory voters rather than the broader electors are on this issue? We have an idea where Tory voters are. There was a poll on the front page of the Times this morning that says three quarters of Tory voters are in broad support of the Starmer plan. Now, the problem is that's not Tory members. That's still not the selectorate that is selecting the next leader of the Tories. And here's the conundrum. So I would expect, if this were a tighter race, I would expect 
one of the candidates to move on this and move quite quickly, and then the other candidate to follow. The problem is it's not a tight race. So Sunak has, as the sort of underdog in the race at the moment, has more reason to shift his position to, to let's say, adopt Starmer's freezing of the cap, okay? The problem is Sunak's main platform is sort of fiscal responsibility, and this goes completely against it. And it would be seen as a quite desperate move, and it might not move the dial enough for him anyway. So why destroy his reputation instead of hang back and wait for the next leadership election? Truss, in the meantime, who is the more likely person to have made an announcement like that because let's face it she's a weather vane and she made she's made all sorts of announcement announcements and all sorts of u-turns on all sorts of things so she's the person you would expect something like this but she's sitting pretty on a very big lead so she has no incentive to and so i think because of the way things stand now there may not be movement in this unless there is some significant intervention at some point. The leadership race uh, rolls on this week. So we stay with uh, three more hustings starting tomorrow night in Perth, then Manchester mm. and Belfast. Um, you were originally bullish on Sunak, then thought he'd blown it quite quickly. <laughs> yeah, um, for about two days. <laughs> you, were, you were Team Rishi for two days there. But, uh, you, I, I wasn't Team yeah, I just thought, I mean, because I just thought he needed to just let her talk. Hmm. in the debates and reveal herself to be the idiot that she is. And what did he do? He talked over her pretty much for the first two debates continuously, which firstly didn't give people a chance to listen to the idiocy of trust, and secondly, made him thoroughly unlikable. It just reduced him, you know, to the 17-year-old office intern that has been there a week but thinks they can run the company better. And so, I mean, yeah, he he blew it. He blew it spectacularly and he blew it in the first debate, I think. And Welsh Secretary Robert Buckland publicly switched on Saturday afternoon from supporting Sunak to backing the trust campaign. Are we expecting any more cabinet ministers to cross the floor? It depends how badly they, they want to keep their job, I guess. I think Buckland... If I'm not mistaken, it was one that had been out in the cold for a while because he had a sort of bust up with Johnson. And he only very recently made it back into a ministerial job because of the sort of reshuffle that happened after pretty much everyone resigned. So I guess he really desperately wants to keep the job for a while. I mean, it doesn't look good and he might lose the job anyway, but we'll see. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former US president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial, this is not a an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. 
This week, we're also still getting our collective heads around what may transpire to be one of the biggest stories of our political lifetime, the fallout from the FBI seizure of documents and papers held by former President Trump at his Mar-a-Lago home. This has already morphed into something like a Tom Clancy novel and is moving very, <laughs> very fast. Um, Alex, as of Monday morning, where are we with all this? So the search warrant was released on Friday after people were demanding to see what it was uh, precisely about because Republican politicians were making out like it had been a fishing expedition and it had been politically motivated. And then the warrant was released. And of course, it turned out that it wasn't a fishing expedition. It was really quite specific and really quite serious. So there are there, there's basically problems with national defense, with mishandling of confidential material, with obstruction of justice. Adam Schiff, who is the top Democrat in the House Intelligence Committee, has asked for a formal, I think it's called a damage assessment. So he's basically asked the intelligence agencies to formally rate former President Trump as a security risk and release that information to Congress, which is quite a big thing. I mean, mm. just imagine that, you know, that, that the, the, the legislature is asking the intelligence agencies to assess how much damage to national security the last president may have done. So it's, I mean, it's big. The only other bit of concrete information that I know is that 11 of the 45 documents that were seized were classified as top secret or highly classified. So really stuff that shouldn't be in someone's, you know, in the basket next to the toilet in someone's guest bathroom. So, I mean, Trump claims to have declassified them all, although there's absolutely no evidence that he did that. Also, he claimed not to have them. Also, he claimed that he would have given them if asked. So that's that's what he and his proxies are saying. Take your pick. What excuse do you want that he he had declassified these documents that he actually didn't have but would have handed over had he been asked? We've already had one incident late last week of a Trump supporter attempting to get into an FBI facility before being shot dead in an armed standoff. Um, how worried are authorities about more of this stuff coming down the pipe? I mean, they're, they're, they're quite worried because part of Trump's support I think, includes the very extreme elements of the far right, the militias, the quite radicalized people, the truthers, the, you know, the conspiracy theorists. So, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, a lot of armed nutters. And I suspect we will see quite a few incidents like this. I mean, the suspect in the Cincinnati incident, Ricky Schiffer, the, the person who was shot, he was like one of the most prominent posters on Trump's truth social network and sort of posted on there that he was about to attack the FBI just before he went and did it. So, I mean, it's interesting that we're discussing, we're discussing the, the Salman Rushdie situation and at the same time we're, we're discussing people attacking the FBI offices because they believe 
you know, Trump is being politically persecuted, because there are clear parallels, aren't they? I think the people doing that sort of thing on Trump's side do it precisely because they expect they will become the heroes of their community in exactly the same reason that religious fanatics believe they will get some sort of credit in heaven for doing this thing. And so it's very difficult to predict. It's very difficult to prevent because you're not dealing with logic. You're dealing with uh, religious fervor or the equivalent of religious fervor. These are Trump zealots. They're not people that you can you know, uh, have a discussion with and convince otherwise. And so I think a lot of it will will depend on how good the intelligence agencies' networks are in, in basically penetrating far-right organizations, how good in, is the intelligence they have from them in order to prevent things before they happen, how good is their monitoring of social media, their um, red flags. But some stuff will get through. So I am absolutely certain we'll see more of this going forward. Back in the UK, the weekend saw more strikes across the rail network, plus announcements from workers at the post office, BT and Openreach, that industrial action would take place for the end of the summer. There's also action coming from Royal Mail workers and also an ongoing walkout from barristers, which continues today. These aren't groups who we typically associate with industrial militancy. So why is this all happening now? Um, yeah, and, and uh, I mean, my suspicion is that nurses and teachers are about to follow suit. So this is happening now really because of a conflation of three reasons. First of all, a decade of austerity robbed these organizations of any fat they might have had, any cuts they could have made have been made, any, um, you know, uh, overtime that could have been worked is being worked. And so there's been a long, long period of demanding more and more of that workforce for less and less money because there's been a public pay freeze for ages. Along comes Brexit and chokes the labor market, which means that staff shortages become even worse Staff is is asked to work even more days, even longer hours, even more overtime to cover those shifts. Frontline services are cut across the board because the, the staff is just in, I mean, look at what's happening with Avanti trains at the moment. And so that's the second factor. The third factor is the cost of living crisis. And so that comes along and makes life so much more incredibly expensive for all those workers. So they've gone through a prolonged period of having their pay effectively frozen and being asked to take more and more work and more and more responsibility, followed by more labor force contraction. That means they were asked to take even more responsibility, followed by, you know, a government that applauds them on the doorstep, but then offers them derisory pay rises, which are actually pay cuts, considering the uh, rate of inflation. And you've got this situation where everyone is basically saying, no, that I mean, that just won't do. I can't afford, you know, if, if you're working all hours God sends, and, you know, in a profession 
that is considered, that was, we saw was considered during, during the pandemic as an essential uh, worker. And government comes out to applaud you on the doorstep, but then they refuse to give you a pay rise that means you can pay your bills. Uh, you know, you're setting yourself up for a confrontation. I mean, right now, the government seem to be working on the assumption that they can blame this on mythical left-wing agitators or indeed the Labour Party, for some reason, and minimise public support. Is that working? And you mentioned the potential for nurses going on strike. Do you think that's the one that they're the most fearful about? Yes. Uh, I mean, it's incre- it becomes increasingly untenable, doesn't it? They can They can pull that line out on rail workers by pretending these are rail drivers, you know, train drivers who, who are very well paid, which, by the way, is a situation that they themselves have created by making the franchises so short-term and putting no training provisions on those franchises. There's basically absolutely zero incentive for train companies to train their own workforce to recruit people, to advance them through the rank and to train them. So what do they do for the short-term profit? They pinch staff from each other. And this is what drives salaries up, because, again, there's a labor shortage. So might be tenable to do it with rail workers, even though Mick Lynch has been a media superstar and really put a kosh on that. But... The more that expands to barristers, to postal workers, you know, to nurses, to teachers, the more untenable it it becomes to say, oh, these are all radicals. Because there comes a time when you end up with such a body of labor against you that, you know, it's the whole country, basically. Everyone knows someone that's a nurse, knows someone that, that's a teacher, has a relative that works for the post office. So you're not just talking by this point about millions of workers, you're talking about their family, their extended family and their friends network. And it becomes really difficult to say all these people are just communist loons and we're the ones that know what's what. Plus, the government keeps coming out and saying, we want a high-wage economy. They're still doing it. I mean, during this leadership campaign, every three sentences comes the the phrase, we will create a high-wage economy. And yet, when it comes to the people that the government is responsible for paying, they go, no, 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 we don't mean you, nurses. We don't mean you, teachers. We don't mean you, social care workers. You don't, we don't mean you, rail workers, we mean someone else when we say we will create a high-wage economy. And finally, the heat wave of the last few days is finally easing off across the country with storms predicted in its place. However, an official drought has already been declared in eight regions across the country with more likely to mm. follow. The Environment Agency is warning this situation could persist into the autumn. Angela Rayner has accused the government of being asleep in the midday sun. What's the political dimension to all of this? And beyond the immediate short term, what else are we likely to see getting impacted by the drought in the weeks and months ahead? You see, I think this ties to the energy crisis in a weird way, because what you're getting is another natural monopoly, effectively, water, that is also suffering, you know, in private hands. And not just the shortages, but also the leaks and also the the pumping of effluent 
into you know public waterways so you have this situation where you know the the rail is in meltdown electricity and gas are far too expensive while vertically integrated energy companies are posting huge profits the water companies are basically letting areas you know they they they're allowing north london to be under 6 foot of water while considering a hose pipe ban and pumping shit into rivers and it creates this situation where it it becomes i think a lot more not only tenable but urgent and rational to start saying are these sorts of natural monopolies logical to have in private hands and i think that's going to be a big 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 issue in the election coming up and anything else we should be keeping an eye on this week alex so this week uh, marks a year since the fall of kabul so i think we will see a lot of uh, news and a lot of documentary material about what's been happening in afghanistan ever since and that's another big stain on the government that they won't want um, people to be reminded of and i think the second story that will blow up this week i've seen leaks and sort of moves to trail a little bit that a level results might be very disappointing for students this year because of course for the last couple of years they've been determined by teachers rather than by exams and there's a shortage of clearance places in universities so i think that will build into quite an important story by the end of the week and that is start your week alex thank you for getting up early you're very very welcome listeners thank you for joining us if you're enjoying the shows we produce the best way to keep them coming is to follow us on patreon where your support can directly fund start your week and our other shows including oh god what now and doomsday watch just search patreon bunker podcast for a few pounds a week gets you the shows early and without ads along with other perks thanks for listening see you tomorrow for the panel show your week from the bunker was written and presented by justin quirk with alex andreu the producers were jacob archbold yelena sofonievich and alex reese with assistant production from kasha to my Schweetz. the lead producer was jacob jarvis and the audio producer was me jay bailey group editor andrew harrison theme tune by kenny dickinson the bunker is a podmasters production <laughs>